Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee-Olibest. Today, we begin our series on patriarchy in East Asia. And to lay the foundation for the next few episodes, we're going to begin with a study of Buddhism. Several months ago, I discovered the book Buddhism After Patriarchy by Rita Gross. And this turned out to be one of my very favorite books to read. It was informative, fascinating, thorough, and written in such a smart but accessible style that I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in this topic. And I'm so, so excited to discuss this book with Marissa Leela and Rachel Lamb. Welcome, Marissa and Rachel. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Happy to be here. So let's begin by having you just introduce yourselves. I'd love to have you talk about where you grew up and your, maybe your families of origin and then your professional work, your education, and just a little bit about what makes you you. This is Rachel. I'll get started. I am a biracial Asian woman. My father is an immigrant from China, came to the U.S. in the 70s, and met my mother, who was a blue-collar white American lady. And so I did grow up with some certainly Asian influence, Buddhist influence, because my father came out of the Cultural Revolution and was a complete 100% atheist. My grandmother, however, my Chinese grandmother was Buddhist. And so as I became older and my dad took her in to live with her, which is very cultural, I did sort of almost absorb by osmosis some of her practices that have become visible to me and I've become aware of, you know, lately in my life. And so I, I grew up in the Midwest and Arizona and then ended up in some different places around the world in my career. I was in Singapore for three years, was in Switzerland, and then here in Salt Lake City. We landed here about five years ago. So I am currently a professor of psychology. I work at Weber State University and I'm also director of a ketamine assisted therapy clinic here in Salt Lake City. Awesome. Thanks, Rachel. So I'm Marissa. I am also biracial. My father is from like a Danish, British, Utah Mormon stock and who immigrated to Utah as homesteaders. And then my mother is Thai and her whole side of the family are all Buddhist and have been in Thailand since forever. So I've kind of come from a very inherently multicultural background and I mostly I'm I'm a filmmaker by trade and I was born in the US but I've lived in several different countries including Taiwan and Hong Kong and Thailand so most of my the core of my growing up was in Thailand which is primarily a Theravada Buddhism country. Okay, awesome. And we'll talk about uh, Theravada Buddhism and uh, the different denominations of Buddhism in a minute. As another introduction before we start, I'll just say a word about the author because I thought this was really interesting. I've encountered Rita Gross in other books that we've read on the podcast and kind of have been piecing together like, oh, she did this too. So it's, it was really interesting to me. Rita M. Gross was born in 1943 in Wisconsin. She was raised Lutheran, but converted to Judaism in her 20s and then to Buddhism in her 30s. In 1974, Gross was named the head of Women in Religion, which was a newly created section of the American Academy of Religion. She earned her PhD in 1975 from the University of Chicago in the history of religions, writing the first doctoral dissertation ever on women's studies in religion. And when I read that in the book, I did a double take and thought like, that can't be right. I did not read that right. But 
I did. I looked it up. It was 1975, and women's studies programs were not established yet in universities. It was actually Gerda Lerner who was responsible for a lot of the establishment of women's studies programs. So yeah, Rita Gross did the first doctoral dissertation ever in women's studies and religion. Then in 1976, she published her groundbreaking article, Female God Language in a Jewish Context, and that was published in the anthology Woman Spirit Rising, which we covered in season one of the podcast. In 1977, Gross became a Tibetan Buddhist, and in 2005, she was made a senior teacher within Tibetan Buddhism. Gross wrote several influential books during her lifetime, the two most well-known of which are Buddhism Beyond Gender, Liberation from Attachment to Identity, and the book we're going to discuss today, Buddhism After Patriarchy, A Feminist History, Analysis, and Reconstruction of Buddhism. And I just really loved this book. I thought the content was fascinating and the writing was incredibly clear and clean. And I found myself thinking a couple of times like, okay, this is the product of a mind that meditates. Like she just like really is so um, incisive in her thinking. Uh, And I want to start with a passage where she describes her personal journey. She says, quote, I was a feminist long before I became involved in Buddhist practice. Quite frankly, I checked very carefully using feminist criteria before committing my energies to Buddhist practice. I was not interested in another trip through a religion so sexist in its symbol system or hierarchical structure that I would inevitably be damaged by it. Somewhat warily, I committed, but I fully expected feminism and Buddhism to be two separate and parallel tracks in my life. It was unnerving and unsettling when the tracks began to merge and intersect. I believe that Buddhism can make a significant critique of feminism as usually constituted, and that Buddhist thought and practice could have a great deal to contribute to feminists by helping feminists deal with the anger that can be so enervating while allowing them to retain the sharp critical brilliance contained in the anger. Buddhist meditation practices can also do wonders to soften the ideological hardness that often makes feminists ineffective spokespersons on their own behalf. End quote. I mean, that was kind of utterly new thinking to me when I read that, like the intersection of Buddhism and feminism. And Rachel, I'm imagining as a psychologist, you have things that you could comment about about those um, those thoughts. But I thought that was kind of a, a really great way to get into the book, just to, to get into her way of thinking of these things. So let's start just taking turns highlighting the most important parts of the book. And I think we were going to start with kind of like a crash course in Buddhism first for any listeners who haven't had an opportunity to study Buddhism. Marissa, maybe you can walk us through some of the basics of the religion. Yes, I'd be happy to. So Buddhism is a non-theistic religion. And even that's not entirely accurate, but we'll just say that's, that's true for right now. But it, it's, it doesn't believe in a supreme being, or it's separate from a supreme being. It has nothing to do with supreme being. It's really ultimately about how to free yourself from suffering, the suffering of life. There's four basic principles that are part of Buddhism and that are called the Four Noble Truths. The first one is the concept that conventional existence is full of suffering. And this ties into the second noble truth, which is the cause of that suffering is rooted in ignorance. And that that ignorance is really about feeling attachment to things that 
are illusory. So you're attached to wealth, you're attached to power, you're attached to material things or temporary things in this life. And those things are not spiritually permanent. And then the third noble truth is suffering can cease. So, hey, good news. Buddhist teachings show you that you, you don't have to be stuck in that suffering, that there are ways, there's, there's a method that you can utilize to release yourself from that suffering, from the attachment that causes suffering, which leads to the fourth noble truth, which is that the path to that liberation from suffering that will lead to enlightenment is laid out for you. And that called the eightfold path. We don't have to go into those details right now, but basically you can follow a path that releases you from that suffering. And here's how to do that. Those are the fundamental truths of what comprise Buddhism. I'm feeling my heart rate go down and my blood pressure go down, even just hearing and just like being reminded of that. I just, we all said as we started this episode, we're like, how are you doing? Like so busy. And I was like, I'm exhausted and stressed. How are you? And I'm like, oh, as you're talking, Marissa, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm attached to illusions actually. And I need to just, I need to be better about releasing, releasing that attachment. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so practical. So wise. It's yeah. so practical. Like yeah. that's, what, that's what I love about Buddhism and that you can, you can utilize these strategies really in no matter what tradition you come from or that you might choose to follow. Like Buddhism is at least philosophically compatible with so many other belief systems. And that's, I, I really appreciate that about Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Okay, well, Rachel, can you talk us through a bit of the history about how Buddhism was founded? Yes. So the start of Buddhism kind of comes back to this prince, this Indian prince in 5th century BCE, Siddhartha, who was essentially kept imprisoned almost by his family in the palace walls. They didn't want him to see the sufferings and the dangers and the sort of the ugliness of the world out there. So he was never exposed to that, but he was not satisfied with all of what he was sort of in. And he took it upon himself to step out and go go into the world. And so this the story that I know is that he he goes out of the palace walls, he goes to be in the world he experienced and and saw the realities of suffering and death and, and illness and destruction. And he was sort of taken by this, like this, this is a this is how it is out there, you know? And so, I mean, he sort of lived, do they call it the homeless path or the what's the the thing they call it? The ascetic. He became an he ascetic. He became an ascetic, right? So he basically starts to live out these principles of detachment from wealth and material things and, and all these things. And sort of in, in this journey that he's on, he becomes the first enlightened being essentially to have reached nirvana. So I'll give a little bit of a definition of that. A transcendent state in which there's neither suffering, desire, nor sense of self, and the subject is released from the effects of karma and the cycle of death and rebirth. So he, Siddhartha, became essentially the first Buddha. So okay. he's kind of like a Princess Jasmine character. 
who I, that's exactly who, what I actually was thinking about. Honestly, what said that who leaves who leaves the palace is like lives this Britsy life, leaves the palace, is in a position to feel the, the deepest empathy they've ever felt in their whole life, and then decides that the way that they've been living is unethical and then just swings their their life's pendulum to the other side becomes an ascetic like eats you know these many grains of rice every day and Mm -hmm. extreme extreme deprivation bodily deprivation so that you stay in a spiritual space but the changing point for buddha was when he was an ascetic he was meditating and he heard a musician tell a story to a child on a boat and hears them say, if the string is too tight, it doesn't sound good. If it's too loose, it doesn't play. Like it has to be at the right tension and realizes in that moment that the life of opulence and a life of asceticism are both extremes that are unnecessary and that the middle path is the most ethical path to take on your journey to enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful story. It's a really, really moving story, I feel like. One thing that I wanted to add here too, partly because we just finished our series on India and we talked about Hinduism. And so this is in a Hindu context, right? He's in India. And so mm-hmm. when when you referred to karma, right? And the never ending cycle of death and rebirth, you're being reborn in two different circumstances with each lifetime. And so nirvana would be that state when you finally reach the top and you don't have to be reborn into higher levels because you've reached the highest level, right? Am I understanding that? Yes, but also reaching the highest level still makes it sound like it's within a hierarchy. And nirvana is the act of totally transcending that cycle, that hierarchy. So you're just, you know, you're given this choice like, hey, you either you get bad karma, you get good karma, like you're given this kind of black and white choice that you die. And then you based on your positives and negatives, you are born with a certain amount of karmic privilege. And then you do it all over again during that life. And hopefully you're you're getting higher and higher and higher. But the point is not to win karma. (laughs) The point is to realize that you can release from all of that, that whole cycle is something that you can transcend into a different reality where you understand spiritually that you can be released from that cycle. So it's not about winning karma. It's about leveling up yourself spiritually so that you can transcend the karmic cycle. So there's kind of three kind of schools of Buddhism. There's the original Buddhism that Buddha started, which is Theravada Buddhism. It's like OG Buddhism. And that's the Buddhism that they practice in Southeast Asia. Then there's Mahayana Buddhism, also referred to as the greater vehicle, which is a more modern approach to Buddhism, incorporated a lot more roles for women, is a major form of Buddhism that became more popularized in Western countries. And then there's uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, which is like more like Tibetan side of Buddhism. Okay, wonderful. Well, let's dive into some of the history as Gross presents it in the book where she starts talking about early attitudes toward women in Buddhist history. So we've told the story of Siddhartha and he's the first Buddha, right? And so like any religious story, you then have, you know, 
the religion starts to get organized, people start to convert, and then you start having doctrine start to be established and praxis starts to be established. So Marissa, can you walk us through some of the monasticism, like the monastic tradition and those early attitudes toward women? (laughs) Yes. So you have this charismatic uh, visionary who brings this enlightenment knowledge to the people and pe- and people are starting to understand like, whoa, this method works. Like I can, I really can achieve nirvana. I can become enlightened if I follow this path. So at first there's a number of male followers who are following Buddha and achieving success and success meaning enlightenment. So fairly early on in the Buddhist organization, Buddha's aunt, who's a devout follower of the Buddha, wants to become ordained. And she has a sizable amount of followers, of women followers, who also want to become ordained and devote their lives to Buddhism and become monks themselves. And remember, we are in India, in 5th century India, where there's a long history of a very rigid caste system and the karmic understanding that women have inherently less karma than men, as evidenced by them being born as women, who inherently have more difficult, dangerous, less autonomous lives. So that's the philosophical context in which his aunt is asking him for ordination. And I think at the time, it's like all of these new things are happening. These Buddhist women are considering something that has never been done before. And they're asking for full ordination, you know, and like no one's ever considered this before. And culturally, it's something that was completely unconsiderable. So Buddha, I guess, considers it for the first time. And he is steeped in sexist culture and also is worried politically about how the women will not be accepted And it doesn't make sense for them to become monks where they don't work and they don't serve others. And like, how can a woman not be in a position of servitude like that? Like conceptually, it just doesn't even compute as a possibility in the culture that they're in and probably in the culture that we're in now. So, (laughs) so yeah, she, she asks and her request is denied basically, but she's very persistent. She keeps asking, she keeps asking he keeps thinking about it and keeps coming back saying, no, like, it's just, it's too much. Like it won't be accepted, but eventually he relents and he ordains his aunt and he ordains her sizable following of women. So yes, there's like feminist win, but in order to make that happen, they have a separate set of rules that are added for women monks exclusively. So they establish a, the sexist hierarchy where women can become enlightened, which seems like you're winning Buddhism, right? But even if you win Buddhism, you still are hierarchically less than even the novice male monks. Like you have to bow to them. You have to defer to them, even if they're a 12-year-old novice monk and you've been studying this for 60 years. Like there's still this hierarchy that's based in sexism. Yeah, so you're basic. They're all subject to all males. Right. Right. And they're below the lowest male. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's, so there's a, there is an ordained nun order, but they're subordinate to 
all the male monks at every level. Mm-hmm. And they had, I think they had eight additional rules. Like they had all the rules the male monks had, but then eight special rules. And then I remember reading too that there was like this, this not a punishment, but like they said that, well, since women had been permitted to join the order, then the Dharma would last only 500 years instead of a thousand years. So it's like this cosmic punishment or something for letting women in. So I would right. imagine that would just cause this feeling always of like feeling like you needed to apologize for being a woman, right? Just constantly, even more more so than before. Right, right. But even within this context, so in some ways women are getting more power than they've ever had, but in other ways it's still kind of a shame, like, you know, from our modern lens that even though in some ways there were these feminist wins that were happening within Buddhism, it still wasn't fair. It still wasn't equitable by any means. However, one beautiful thing is that even within this context, the ordination of women, so Buddha's aunt and all of the women followers after her, they started recording their stories in poetry. So there's all of these poems that are about the enlightenment of all of these early Buddhist women. And these poems are collected in a collection called the Taragatha. So the the songs of the women elders or the Psalms of the sisters, which is really amazing. It's canonized within Theravada Buddhism. So that's the earliest form of Buddhism. And that's still practiced in Southeast Asia, including Thailand, where I'm where I'm from. I just I think that it's really lovely that there's this work, this body of work. And it wasn't just noble women or aristocratic women. These are stories of old women, young women, widows, mothers, prostitutes, poor people, like all types of women who were these early converts and this collection still exists and you can read their poems directly from their experience. So I think, I think that's pretty special. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was so special. It was really, really moving to read that and made me wish that I had grown up with something like that in my faith tradition. Another really interesting thing that I thought from this section was that learning about the line of ordination within Buddhism, I didn't realize it was kind of like Catholic or Mormon ordination or sourdough starter is the other analogy. I thought where like you can trace it back, right? Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope or, you know, presidents of the church or whatever, or, you know, you can trace Buddhist ordination. I, I did not know that. That was totally new to me. And then Marissa, you were sharing the story of the nun's lineage. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I was looking into ordination because I'm interested in being ordained myself. And in in Thailand, it's a very common practice for men to become monks at some point in their life. It's, It's almost a religious expectation, whether that's for your whole life or for a year or for a week. And so I, as I've been in a place of transition and in a lot of healing in my life, I've been looking at Buddhist ordination for myself. And as I was researching it at first, it was very disheartening because while there are ordained Buddhist women in some traditions, on the Theravada side, they're traditionalists. Like they are, they, they're, the practice is this is how things were established originally, and we should not deviate from those things because 
if it was good enough for Buddha, it's good enough for us. They have more of a puritanical view of how Buddhism should be practiced. So even though Buddha himself ordained women to become monks and fully ordained women monks are referred to as bhikkhunis. So even though bhikkhunis have existed since close to the beginning of Buddhism's you know, birth, there's all these rules around, like you have to have a group of 10 bhikkhunis in order to ordain a new bhikkhuni. And since that lineage has never reached Thailand, then it, that's, that's always been used as an excuse for why women cannot be ordained within the Theravada Buddhist tradition. They feel like that lineage of ordination has been broken. And so the only way that a woman could become ordained is to find that line and maintain that line from the first woman that was ordained by Buddha to now. And unfortunately, those lines were lost. So there's been a big gap in women's ordination on the Theravada side. And when Buddhism after patriarchy was released, they had not found the line. So it got lost in Sri Lanka. There was like famine and war and all these things that, and there were genocide that happened that completely killed the bhikkhuni line in Sri Lanka. And so it was thought that the Theravada bhikkhuni ordination line was lost forever. But then more recently, they rediscovered that that line was actually carried on in Taiwan. So that's really exciting because you have this line that's maintained. And then they were able to send Theravada Buddhists from all over Asia to Taiwan and reestablish the ordination for women. So very, very recently, there is, I think it's just one temple in Thailand where some women have been able to become ordained and reestablish Buddhist ordination for women in Thailand. That is very exciting. But it's incredible. <laughs> so, so it's kind of an update from this book. And I'm, I don't know, but I hope that Rita Gross knew that before. Before yeah. she passed? Yeah. Yes. I mean, as you were talking, I'm just thinking too, when you're in places where men are already in power, there's no motivation to look for any of this. It's just like, oh yeah, ladies, that's all gone now. Lost totally. forever. You can never be what we are. So, oh, sorry. You know, so, I mean, there's no impetus for them to do anything unless they really, really super care about justice for women, which even the Buddha didn't. He, he was begged by his aunt, please let us. And he was kind of like, okay, fine, but you got to follow all these extra rules and you're still below us. Like, so mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think sometimes, and I, I'm sure this will probably come up. I know that it's actually much more perhaps common is the right word or typical for Western women to want to practice Buddhism and come into it, not really knowing some of this history that's existed. And so as we in the West kind of hear about it, it's like, oh, that seems like a pretty maybe like egalitarian religion compared to Christianity, compared to Mormonism or whatever. But actually embedded in the whole history is the suppression of women just all along the way. So just to discover like, oh, wait, wait, you don't have us yet. You know, that that's the feeling I get. I'm like, mm there's still, the lineage is still alive. Like this is still a thing. Like what an empowering piece of knowledge to then have 
to, um, you know, go forth in the, in this, in this whole process, you know, or in this whole thing, if this is where your, your tradition lies. So, so yeah, just some, some thoughts on that. So cool. And Marissa, you have to tell us when you're ordained, that's going to be like such an incredible experience. Wow. Okay. So we alluded to this a little bit before already, but earlier, Marissa, you talked a little bit about the reincarnation cycle and that women were seen as karmically lower than men, right? Like, oh, what a shame. You must have done something kind of bad in your past lives because you were reincarnated as a woman. I thought this was interesting. This is one of the kind of the negative aspects of Buddhism for feminists because gross rights that this belief can be used really effectively against women who don't have an alternative analysis to question this system and be like, wait, this feels horrible, but I don't know what to believe instead. She says, not only are they told they are only reaping what they have sowed and therefore have no basis for complaint. They can also be told that if they rebel against the system by trying to change patriarchal norms concerning the treatment of women, they are creating negative karma for themselves. So they're just kind of stuck. And that was, yeah, just really sad to me. And one other thing that I remembered from this section of the book is she talks about in Tibetan Buddhism, the literal word, the very word for woman in the Tibetan language literally translates as born low. It's not slang. It's not just a local saying or something. She says the word carries a conscious social status that Tibetans everywhere recognize as low. Yes, they say a woman is not as capable as a man. She cannot enter into new areas of development. Her place is in the house. She lacks a man's intellectual capacity. She's unable to initiate new things. And finally, she cannot become a bodhisattva until she is reborn as a man. So Rachel, I'm wondering if you can talk about this a little bit, about this whole concept of, I guess, switching genders and what, and maybe actually first tell us what's a bodhisattva and talk about this issue a little bit. Yes, sure. Um, So what I know of it is the bodhisattva is a person who gets to a level of enlightenment where they have a purpose, like sort of a mission or a life purpose to specifically stay on this earth to help people through the sufferings of earth. So it's a sort of like a decision, like they choose this suffering as a particular level or, or phase of enlightenment at this place, because they're going to essentially kind of help heal the world. So that, that's kind of how I look at it. And so the, just a little bit of an aside on that, This word struck me in this book because I had first learned of the word from a different book written by a Catholic priest on the friendship between Thich Nhat Hanh and Mm. Martin Luther King Jr. So Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a famous monk with lots and lots and lots of writings, and you probably see quoted and all kinds of things, who who just passed away recently, Mm -hmm. a year or so ago. He had a really beautiful friendship with Martin Luther King Jr. and was devastated by his assassination. And he believed that Martin Luther King Jr. was a bodhisattva. So that was kind of my prior encounter with this concept and word. So as I'm reading through it in in this book, Buddhism After Patriarchy, and getting to this place where it's like, you cannot become a Buddha until you are reincarnated as a man. And so you can, it's kind of like the best shot women had as women was to become a bodhisattva. So as I was 
thinking, you know, through this, I just, it, it for me, it just, it almost felt like, like a little bit of like this knife in the heart, like, oh gosh, like you're, you're just, you're limited in every, you know, you, you can, we'll give you, we'll give you like some crumbs, here's some crumbs, here's some crumbs, here's, you know, so this idea of, especially as you shared, you know, Rita Gross talking about women are just inherently lesser beings, like just inherently lesser beings. So you get born into this world named as an inherently lesser being, and you don't even have the possibility that you might be an equal being to a man. All the way through to this idea that you cannot become a Buddha until you are reincarnated as a man. That was just a powerful part, I think, for me, as I thought through you know, the existing oppressions we as women still face, you know, and again, back to this idea that like, I think a lot of time Buddhism in the West is seen as this kind of like, you know, kind of equitable space for all genders. There, There is this rich history of oppression, if I can say it that way, that that was just threaded throughout all of everything in the society and in the Buddhist communities. Yes, that reminds me of the quote, I think, right where you were just talking about where there was this debate. And again, it's like the men debating this, like, can a woman be enlightened or can't she? And they're they're deciding whether they can or can't. And um, but even though there's like hundreds and thousands of women who are saying we've been enlightened. Totally. You know, here's already, all here. Yeah, here's, it's already, we're yeah, already we can talk about it. Here's all yeah. our poetry right. Right. describing our experiences. Like, right. And yet the debate continues. The debate continues. And they said one thing that they like to say was that, and this is a quote from the book, it says that in all of his rebirths on his way to becoming the Buddha, Siddhartha had stopped being reborn as a female quite early before he stopped being reborn as an animal. Um, so yeah, it says many Mahayana texts saw Buddhahood and womanhood as antithetical to each other. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more, though, about there's this scene that I know we were talking about before where there's a woman, I think, debating with maybe a monk or something, and she always confounds him whenever they debate. And he says, like, oh, if you're so realized, then why aren't you a man? I'm confused. You should be a man by now if you're this wise. And then in one of the variants of this story, the it says the female then magically transforms her body into a male body. But then in the other variant of the story, she retains her female body, demonstrating by logic or by magic the utter relativity and unimportance of sexual differentiation. So there's this tradition, too, within Buddhism of like, like I guess, like we said before, detachment from sexual identity. I think that's one of the titles of Gross's book. Do you want to talk about that, about like... Maybe does that lead to an openness even today of fluidity of gender within some of these cultures? I I love this conversation. This is, this is Marissa's specialty right now. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but it's it's very interesting to me, like as as a queer person and as a as a gender questioning person myself, and as a Thai human, I, who is seeking the practice of Buddhism as a lifestyle. Right. It's like if gender is something that is changeable within the rounds of reincarnation, right? So there that's, that's established within Buddhism. You can be born a woman, an animal, a man, a, you know, whatever, like these, these are things that, that change. 
everyone is gender fluid in that, in like a spiritual sense, right. which is so already there, a really sort of no, if you can, as a spirit, have a male form in one life and a female form in another, then as a spirit, logically, that would mean you're not either or you are right. both you're like genders, gender right? agnostic. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so that, that's really interesting. And then, but I feel like it's particularly interesting within Buddhism because, you know, the main goal of Buddhism is to release yourself from the attachment to illusion. You are realizing that your attachment to impermanence, to material reality, which is impermanent, to all of these things that don't have meaning in a permanent cosmological sense if once once you let go of those things then that is part of how you a- obtain enlightenment and become released from the rounds of reincarnation so it seems like part of that process is also releasing yourself from the attachment to gender which what do the men all think about that right who are all talking about mm-hmm. what do we allow women to do Mm-hmm. Well, now if you're gender equal, this is a very dumb conversation, right? But yeah, as, it's so, going on and on and on for thousands of years, right? right? And it's interesting because these philosophical conversations happen within cultural contexts where there's certain assumptions that are made like women are inferior, period. But then at the same time, they'll have these stories that are about, you know, a little girl or a woman confounding people with her Buddhist knowledge and with her understanding of lived enlightenment, so much so that the impermanence of material reality is something that she can have volition over, right? So she can change her own gender or she can change the person she's fighting with's gender and demonstrate to them that their gender is impermanent. And so so that, that conversation is kind of a silly one to have. So I, I feel like that's that's so interesting. I don't know where else. I mean, I, I grew up in Thailand, so there there was like concepts of gender. I mean, there are different in a lot of different in a lot of different countries. Like you know what masculinity looks like, what femininity looks like. But it's but it does make me question like in how many how much how visible transgender folks are in Thailand with this conversation within Buddhism of you know, this gender agnosticism. Yeah. Like if, I mean, and it, it's funny, I, you know, I just, I'm a little bit in my, my science mode because I, I teach research methods and I, I just finished teaching class. So we were ta- literally talking about reasoning, logical reasoning. I mean, I, I, I just am coming back to this, like, here's this tradition that says, here's the path to like, no, no more suffering is we're going to detach from all these, you know, material and conceptual things that keep us stuck on something that's temporary. Well, guess what else is temporary? Gender. Because you just talked about being reborn as a man or woman. So why would it matter at the end of that all that you have to be reborn as a man if gender is fluid mm-hmm. from the spirit sense? And Buddhism is all about detaching from these things. So it's kind of a crazy thing to me where I'm it's like, a little bit of a catch this is very, very illogical, actually, mm-hmm. right? But, but yet, who is going to be the ones to press against this? It's not going to be the men. The people in power, the people of privilege do not know how to not take advantage of their privilege. It's not human. It's so much work. It's so, you know, so I mean, this is 
my answer to my question of like, why, this is so illogical. Why does this happen for, well, because the, it, it's by, it's by the, the people in power who are the men who are saying these things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's so curious to me, cause I visited Thailand. Um, when I lived in Asia, I went to Thailand a couple of times and the transgender people are, are very visible. And I was really struck by like, oh, wow, this is really part of a culture, which is interesting. 95% of Thailand is Buddhist basically, right? And this conversation about gender and the importance of it or what should not be important about it maybe, you can see it in the existing cultural space. Like you, it's visible. Gender fluidity is more visible in that space. So for sure. I know I've been reading a lot of quotes, but I want to read one more that, that good. came to mind because it kind of encapsulates this. There's this conversation in what's called a, a goddess chapter in one of the sutras. And there's this man who's having a conversation with a goddess. And the man says, why don't you change your female sex? And she says, I have been here 12 years and have looked for the innate characteristics of the female sex, and I haven't been able to find them. So I just kind of love that that conversation where he needs, like, it's really important to him that there is this binary division between male and female. And if you're a goddess, then why haven't you changed? You would want to be a higher incarnation, right? Right. She's like, dude, there are no differences. Like, show me the differences I've been looking for. So I kind of loved that part. (laughs) Okay, let's wrap up. If there's anything that you feel like you wanted to talk about that we didn't I mean, my message to everybody is like, <laughs> be aware of, of what we live in. We, we live in a patriarchal society in America. As things are changing, which I do believe they are, actually, I do believe there is a movement right now of, I will call it the divine feminine, of women coming forth in leadership positions, of women stepping into power, at least in my lifetime to a more visible degree. And so I think sometimes what you learn just in a very general sense is that we have been living across the entire world in all so many spaces in oppression as women, right? And and like, what do we learn from particularly with Buddhism? I still come back to this, you know, some of the stuff that Rita Gross talks about, which is, oh, it's, it's sort of more accepted in the West that women can kind of come and you see more women practicing Buddhism or whatever. But we have to go back to this history and recognize where it's come from, you know, like just like now, just like my particular tradition in Christianity. Good Lord, how many times has the Bible been used to oppress women? You know, that cultural voice of oppression against women is so incredibly strong still today. And it always has been. I mean, that feels like a despairing kind of message. But I think the hope is that here we are having this discussion. Here you are doing podcasts on patriarchy and how it affects everything that we live as both women and men, but but it hurts us, right? But it's different for us as the ones on the side of oppression. Yeah, I guess for me, I'm thinking about how we're often taking a feminist perspective and applying that feminist lens to all these various disciplines that perhaps was lacking a feminist perspective before. But I think it's really interesting to apply a Buddhist perspective to the feminist school of thought too, like Mm. taking mindfulness lessons, taking lessons learned from meditation and being able to 
clear your mind of what isn't important and what is not meaningful and focus on what is meaningful and what is permanent and what is spiritually significant. I feel like that is how you move forward in Buddhism or any religion with a more feminist and equitable lens in general. And I really love this quote where she talks about the main point of Buddhism is the co-humanity of, she says women and men, but it's really of every one. Mm-hmm. So understanding your co-humanity like that, your co-humanity is spiritually significant. That's one of the spiritually significant things. I feel like we can debate all day about this concept that Buddha said, or this method that we utilized in, you know, 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact is, is that even Buddha said when women were ordained, that the Dharma, so Buddhist, te- Buddhist teaching was only ever supposed to last for a thousand years. And then it, you know, suffered a little bit because they added women to the Sangha, to the Buddhist body. So then the Dharma, Buddhist teachings got cut in half from a thousand years to 500 years. So we're already millennia beyond that. Right, right. Beyond that saying. Exactly, and no one's yeah. having trouble with that. Right. That technicality. So it seems like there's all kinds of examples, including the existence of Buddhism itself. Right. That is bucking the technicalities of things right. that Buddha said already. So, you know, let's like make it work for people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? right. Like let's actually use the principles of Buddhism to come at feminism and come at, you know, all of this stuff. And and I'm thinking again, this idea of transcending any and everything, male, female, material things, wealth, whatever, whatever, whatever. So yeah, that's a good word. I think that's a good word, Marissa. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here, Marissa, Leela, and Rachel Lamb. So appreciate your time. And thanks for reading this book with me and having the conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production. Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.